Welcome to Your Untamed Life, the podcast bringing you stories of transformation, growth, fear, success, alignment, challenges, and more, with the intention to inspire you and light you up to find your unaligned path of transformation and let it unfold in front of you without letting fear hold you back. I'm Amanda Petra, your host and passionate human being. Without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Ray. How are you? I'm so excited that you're on the podcast. I am very good. Thanks for having me. It's uh, different being on the other end of the microphone. <laughs> Normally yeah. I'm the host. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And you look like such a professional podcaster and I'm like here like, oh, okay, but I welcome you and I'm so glad you're here. Everything we're talking about today is going to be, you know, so important and I can't wait to share about everything regenerative agriculture, which I think we're just going to call Regen Egg from this moment on because it's so yes. long. And don't ask me to spell it because I struggle every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. Yeah, this topic is so near and dear to my heart, so I can't wait. I truly believe it's the best way forward for like farming and humans and the planet, which is all tied together. I'd love to share more about that alongside your story, though, as well. Let's dig into that and sprinkle in everything that you're doing, you know, land that's available for purchase and co-ownership mm. kind of thing. So I, you know, absolutely adore what you're doing. It's incredible you. how you manage to shake up things. Yes, no problem. <laughs> you know, what you're doing for Australia is just amazing. And with Farmlet now and with Farming Secrets before, I'd love it if you could share with the listeners what you're up to right now with Farmlet and give us some juicy detail and you know, it's so important. So let's go start with that. Awesome. Well, to unpack what I'm doing now, I just want to rewind a little bit. So my passion has always been marketing, business, entrepreneurship. I love the startup phase of businesses. I love that new idea and bringing it to life. And so five, six years ago, I was running a marketing consulting business and I met Farming Secrets at a mutual Christmas dinner with a company that we used to all kind of hang out with. And so the relationship bloomed from there and I started as just doing a couple of days a week and then that grew and grew and grew. And then I became a director of Farming Secrets and helped grow their business from a physical DVD education company for farmers and regenerative ag or back then it wasn't even called that, but just the love for soil. And uh, we built an online learning platform called the Soil Learning Center during COVID. And so what happened is I started watching this content as a marketing person and I was like, wow, this is so powerful what we can do if we educate farmers and growers to nurture soil and not put all these harsh chemicals onto our food system. And that is kind of what started my love for soil. And, you know, we kind of started creating a community called Soil Lovers. And that's where my podcast, Secrets of the Soil, kind of came from, just wanting to give soil more of a voice and getting people kind of excited about this secret that was like really beneath our feet. You know, before I started watching this content, I never realized that, you know, I thought, okay, food was grown by farmers and, you know, there's this whole in industrial agriculture that existed, but I never realized that the soil was so powerful and it was really linked to, you know, climate and, you know, the fact that uh, the carbon that's in the soil is how, you know, healthy the soil is. And the more I learned, and I kind of joke and say, the more that I kind of dug deeper and got my hands dirty, the more addicted I got to realizing that soil is a very powerful commodity, I guess, or, you know, asset of our planet. And so I once used to be a big advocate of sustainability. And then I realized that if we sustain a system that was broken, it's going to remain broken. So then I really 
got behind this kind of regenerative movement. And I know that like not all systems can regenerate and, you know, like it's kind of a bit of a weird word, but it's kind of the buzzword that we have going at the moment. But I kind of see it as in like, how do we make the planet better than it was yesterday? Or how do we improve our soils this month to last month or this year to last year? So I think when people are empowered to track and measure their soils and even their health and their well-being, their financial situation, global crisis of everything, then we can really move things back up to a more stable spot and then we can sustain. So if my pathway went, let's regenerate systems, make them better, then sustain them. Because I feel like a lot of the systems have depleted a lot over the last 50 to 60 years. Mm-hmm. So that's where industrial agriculture came into it. And when you start, you know, following, you know, going down that rabbit hole and you like find these interesting dots that you can join and go, ah, so the company that makes the chemicals to like grow the food also genetically has modified the seeds. So that way their chemicals only work on their seeds and the seeds aren't, you know, able to to germinate and and self-sow. You kind of need to buy seeds again. And you're like, oh, there's everyone in this to kind of make money over and over and over. And you get stuck in this system where you just keep putting more and more chemicals and more and more inputs into the system. And you kind of feel like your yields and your results are shrinking. And so I really just wanted to get behind and empower people for that. And then late last year, I moved into setting up, well, actually during last year, we realized that, you know, a lot of Australians want to own land, but getting into land is quite difficult. It's millions of dollars. You know, a lot of the land in Australia is very large parcels of land. And so you know, they come with price tags of, you know, four, five, six million and all the way up to say 20 million. And everyday Aussies aren't going to get a slice of that. And that's where Farmlet and the name that you mentioned before kind of came into it because we wanted to empower people that they can be connected to the soil. They can know their farmer. And especially post COVID where a lot of people became more interested in where their food was coming from. There was like food shortages, the big supply chains had empty shelves, but people were leaning on their farmers to give them say, subscription boxes and things like that to feed their families. And so, yeah, creating a bridge between knowing you know, where the steak on your plate or this bowl of salad at the dinner table kind of came from. We created Farmlet as a way of empowering people to own a slice of farmland that was a lot more affordable. We're talking a few thousand dollars to $10,000 per slice in a co-ownership model. And we can kind of dig a little bit deeper into that later. So that's kind of what led me to Farmlet and working on a few of these different projects, but underlying it's the love of soil and caring for soil that really gets me fired up. (laughs) Yes, it does. I love that. It's just like built this love in you. It's really, really cool how you found it too. It just kind of found you and you seem to be the perfect person to really make this message like louder and prouder and in people's faces. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And yeah, I love how you found that sustainability was really not the way in the word to use to go forward and regenerative is kind of the word for it. But yeah, making things better instead of just sustaining that really broken system. And it is interesting how during COVID everyone found that the system was kind of broken, the food system was broken and relying on it was really putting them in a situation that they didn't want to be in. So this is a really cool development from that. Maybe let's dig into a little bit of what regenerative agriculture is because people might not know specifically, just a few specifics. Yeah, awesome. No, that's a really good point because, yeah, we throw the buzzword around and we don't really know where, where it came from. And so I guess the basics in my view on regenerative agriculture is 
looking at the way that soil actually functions. So soil is what was kind of groundbreaking to me, pun intended, a living mm -hmm. organism. And, you know, there is life in the soil. And that's the difference between, say, dirt versus kind of soil. Soil has organisms and bacteria and fungi and all these amazing little critters that you need a microscope, which I have one behind me, to see. And it's very fascinating to Google, you know, soil life under a microscope and look at it on YouTube. And you just start realizing that it's this living organism. And for far too long, we were not looking at soil from a biological point of view. We didn't realize that all these chemicals that might be killing the bugs above the ground, say, a, you know, a pesticide that is to treat a bug that's on, you know, the leaves of a plant. While we're killing the bug on the plant, we're also killing the life in the soil. And so regenerative agriculture is just a way of farming your farmland or, you know, being a steward of the land or the soil and making sure that you are making decisions on your farm that are looking after that soil to improve its life. And so there's a couple of principles, but like not all of these have to be in or have to be out. But when you start looking at the way the soil functions, you start realizing that, you know, a lot of farming techniques require you to till the soil and like turn it up to like get rid of all the weeds. And then what that does is like basically exposes the soil and disturbs it and it kills all the kind of underground networks and fungi and bacteria that are kind of working there. And, it, you know, your soil then starts baking in the sun and all the moisture evaporates and then, you know, you're kind of making the soil dead and especially that topsoil. Now, sometimes tilling is necessary, like getting a plot ready or, you know, all that. But a lot of people have moved away from tilling and they use things such as cover crops where they're putting plants on top of that soil to improve it. And so one of the things that really blew my mind is that, you know, in the world of farming, we have this word called weeds. And whenever I refer to weeds, I tend to do these air quotes because, Weeds is technically just a plant that's not in the desired spot. It's not really something that's bad because what's really exciting is that weeds or these plants, I call them signal plants now. They're basically signaling to us humans above the ground what's happening below the ground. So if a particular plant keeps popping up where you don't want it and we call it a weed, then it's actually trying to tell us that maybe that ground is compact and that plant is trying to fix the soil. But because we keep removing it, by tilling or spraying weed killers, we're not letting the plant do its function. So these are all different things that we can kind of apply in regenerative agriculture that starts looking at the soil and the land as like a signal uh, to us. And then we can start making decisions on how we can improve that land and work with it and make the soil better. And there are soil tests that you can do. And a lot of the farmers that we work with now or landowners who are really conscious about uh, their soil quality, they are doing soil tests, you know, on a regular basis. They're learning to understand that, you know, what all, all the different minerals make up look like, what carbon, you know, organic matter percentages mean for water retention and the growth of certain things. And they're also looking at chemicals or not chemicals, they're looking at inputs that they can replace their chemicals with or work with their chemicals to help balance that ecosystem. So if you're going to put something on that, say, has a negative effect, how are you also doing something that's going to have a positive effect so it kind of neutralizes itself. And the world of nature is very, very good at balancing that. You know, we look at sites like Chernobyl that, you know, humans can't mm -hmm. go on, um, an amazing documentary that is on Netflix that talks about, I think it's the witness statement of, oh, his name's um, slipped my mind, David Edinburgh, sorry. Yeah. Um, he's created a documentary of his witness statement 
of how he's seen different landscapes evolve over just his lifetime. And he talks about that, you know, if you go to Chernobyl, like it's the plants and the wildlife that are thriving. And so when an environment needs to heal itself, it's the plants that are going to do that and the organisms and so forth. So we let nature do what nature does best. It will kind of work all the toxins out of the soil and improve its quality and retain water and make it a thriving ecosystem. The same way as a rainforest has no one tilling that soil or no one working that, but it's full of moisture and life and basically just awesomeness. I don't know how else to explain it, you know, with no intervention of human needs at all. So that's kind of what regenerative agriculture is, is, you know, letting soil be your North Star and making decisions around how you can protect the soil and make it better year on year. And if there is an unfortunate event, like how do you course correct from that? But there's no, you know, I don't like this kind of like methods of like, you can't do this because that's not regenerative. Like it's the right tool at the right time for the right purpose, you know? So if you have to till your till, if you have to spray to get ahead uh, to then start your regenerative journey, then you do that, you know, but it's then knowing what your farm will look like 10, 15, 20 years down the track. Uh, I've met farmers with, you know, 1000 year business plans on their farm, you know, so they know that the the farm's going to be left to their kids or there's, you know, First Nation people who are going to come back and claim some of the land back and have access to some ritual sites and all that. So I think it's really important that we stop talking farming year to year or season to season, which is very short-term thinking and start thinking about what does the landscape look like even beyond our time here and what we're going to leave it like for future generations. Yeah. Yeah. The season to season felt like everyone just kind of ended up band-aiding things because they didn't think long enough ahead. It was really interesting. I was always someone who questioned this whole thing when I was younger too, about like weeds, like why are we getting rid of weeds? Like they're just plants that no one desires. And like, and then you can't leave the dandelion on your lawn because your neighbor will judge you, but the dandelions, they're doing something specifically for your soil. (laughs) So interesting. And the dandelion has the most beneficials from medicinal, edible, yeah. like every single part of the dandelion is basically has a purpose or a function to make tea from it. It's taproot yeah. is, you know, good. Its sap is good. There's so many beneficials, things from dandelions. Yet yeah, it's like you said, you're getting judged by the neighbors <laughs> because you have, you know, the yellow flowers in your garden bed. And that's what we're ruining your lawn. Yeah. yeah, and that's what we're ruining the planet for, like our neighbors' opinions and things. Like I have that patch of weeds outside, and I have to tell the my my leasing agents all the time, I've left it for the bees. I'll get rid of it. Like, yeah. But whatever, they're doing what they need to do. It's amazing, like that they pop up when the plant next to it needs something, and it just gives back to it. So impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Companion planting is definitely a big part of it and that's one of the things that's happened even in farming you know people identify themselves as a particular type of farmer like I'm a corn grower or Mm -hmm. I'm a cattle grazer and or a sheep farmer like there's this whole identity of like the type of farmer that you are and one of the things that's kind of trending at the moment is what's known as like syntropic farming or agroforestry also in the permaculture movements things such as food forests where you have a lot of plants kind of grouped together, working in symbiosis together, where they, one is taking copper, the other one's putting copper in, you know, when the leaves fall of one tree, that's acting as like mulch and bedding for the next plant. And so this kind of system of companion planting and planting your produce in a way where all the plants are kind of working together, where there's always been this kind of theory. And, you know, some plants are very water hungry and they're stealing all the water, quote unquote. 
you know, it's really working out that, oh, maybe if I have a cover crop in the middle of those rows, then that's capturing the dew in the morning and putting that into the ground. And then the tree is sucking that moisture out of the soil. And so when you start realizing how the mini systems of this very large system works, you can put things in place. And that's what syntropic farming, agroforestry, and, you know, food forests are doing really, really well of getting a lot of produce and yield from what someone would look at and and go oh my god that is chaos you know you can't run a tractor down those straight lines you know a lot of the industrial machinery and way of farming has caused these farms of like clear land and removing all the trees because the trees were in the way of Mm -hmm. running tractors to collect all the produce in mass yeah they were protecting and all of that too yeah yeah and now we're in this kind of process of like trying to put all the trees back in uh, yeah. to create biodiversity and, and bring back the wildlife. And, you know, there's areas where, you know, they've basically cleared so much land that all the wildlife has disappeared. And so diversity has dropped. It's made things more prone to like disease and infection because there's not all those animals and critters and wildlife that are working together, you know, like little ladybugs eat aphids, you know, but then there's something else that eats the ladybug. And if you remove one piece of that kind of system, then you get a domino effect of bad experience. So bringing all that biodiversity back is creating some really good results. Yeah. I imagine that's challenging. And that's where that comes in, where sometimes we'll bring in the chemicals as we're slowly shedding away the old, well, the the new industrial ways back to the old ways of like the plants are just going to take care of themselves kind of thing. Yeah, like yeah. the planet will be green after humans are gone. Like the less you touch it, the better. I just, I don't know. How that's, <laughs> yeah, in our faces. Yeah. But that's great and amazing. Like explanation about Regen Egg. I think that's really understandable. I'd love to know how you got into like the Regen Egg specific world. Oh, I guess we did talk about that, but like. Yeah, no, I can definitely talk about like the turning point because yeah. So like, there was definitely a time in my life where. I thought sustainability was the way. And then I had this aha moment and went down the regenerative. So happy to unpack that if you want. Yeah, let's unpack that. So, yeah. So there was a time in my life where, you know, I have like a value statement and it lists the type of values and I call it my value filter. It kind of stemmed out. I I read Simon Sinek's book starts with why. And I really like the fact that if you kind of know why you're doing something, you're able to make better decisions. And so I created my value statement document and I had a whole heap of whys on that. And one of my whys was, you know, to leave the planet better than the way I found it and, you know, through sustainability. And then I had this kind of aha moment when I was working with Farming Secrets and setting up the Soil Learning Center that this word sustainable was kind of overused and greenwashed and, you know, greenwashing and I come from the marketing space. So, mm-hmm. you know, I understand that, you know, you got to make things sell, but you know, we're throwing labels and buzzwords on packaging. That's really just, you know, confusing the consumer, but this kind of sustainability everywhere was like, let's go green and going green expos and, you, you know, like save the world through sustainability. And I went, oh, hang on a minute. If we keep depleting everything and everything's kind of like broken, then like, I don't want to be part of that kind of system where, you know, I know that things aren't kind of really working. Uh, it's kind of like when, you know, you might be unhealthy or you being diagnosed with something and you know that say the habits that you're doing in your life aren't really helping to that, then your main goal is to kind of stop doing that. If you keep doing what you're doing, then you're not really kind of setting yourself up for success. Mm-hmm. And if you do, at least you're choosing to do that with a conscious understanding and not naiveness of like, just didn't know. And so now that I discovered this word regenerative, I couldn't back 
and be a champion for sustainability. So I had to go back and update my documents and like, no, now I'm an advocate, I guess, of the regenerative movement. And I did an amazing program with Kiss the Ground. It was like a course and it's, it is online and anyone can go and do it. And it's to be a soil advocate. I really enjoyed that because it kind of empowered me to really understand how powerful soil is and like what some of the systems are doing to the greater landscape. And I think one of the the dilemmas is that we're so disconnected from our food systems and how things are grown. Like we just see things in a packet in the supermarket. And, you know, a lot of people like, you know, stop the plastic and da, da, da. But that's a consumer driven kind of problem that if you actually understand how the farming system works, like removing things from plastic and changing them to say like paper trays um, is actually more damaging because the, the, the shelf life of the produce drops and diminishes which means that the logistic companies are having to find other ways of cold storing or doing other things like gassing the food so it lasts longer just to avoid the plastic tray from being used. And so, you know, we're too busy focusing on like what's on the aisle and what's in the consumer kind of viewpoint and we're not really going back and seeing all the different dots that are causing that. And so like if we all just got connected to the land, you know, supported farmers, went to community gardens, you know, were involved in farmers markets, we would realize that, you know, a lot of the good quality food is really at our fingertips. We just need to change the way that we do a few things on a week-to-week basis. So that's kind of what got me around the regenerative movement, had that kind of aha moment to go, ah, no more sustainability, let's go all in on regenerative. So that's what I'm Yeah, perfect. Oh, it's so good. Not many people can do that and be like, okay, I'm sorry, I was a bit, I was wrong or like that wasn't quite right. That wasn't what I wanted actually. And you actually got to backpedal and swallowed your pride and your ego. So very good. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people just move forward stubbornly and then that's where we end up with this unsustainable process of just like, well, we're just going to greenwash everything and that'll make us feel better and sleep better at night <laughs> whereas it doesn't yeah yeah it just continues that systemic breaking really interesting did anyone ever like call you like crazy or anything for going into the region uh, I think I think I've gotten crazy all my life depends you know because like I think there's always this quote that I like where it's like first they'll call you crazy and then they'll ask you how mm. and I definitely feel like because I'm a bit of an early adopter to like technologies and trends. I've always, you know, been someone who, you know, embraced the internet very early, you know, started my first business, which was web design back in the early 2000s, still at high school, you know, like set up a co-working space before people even knew what co-working was, launched a podcast before podcasting was like really trendy in Australia. Like I've always kind of seen where the planet is going and I kind of get behind things when no one really wants to be part of it. And so, yeah, regenerative was definitely one of those things as well where people, you know, and there's still a lot of people who shiver when they hear the word regenerative because it does come with like some kind of, you know, some people will kind of refer to it as woo-woo and like, oh, that's a bit weird. And it's like some of the practices around different farming styles. But, you know, like, I guess, you know, if it has a woo-woo factor, you either go all in or you go all out, you know, and I think there's a lot of things that we haven't allowed to be funded yet. You know, that's one of the things I have a big kind of concern with is that like a lot of the research that happens now is waiting on things to be funded and unless it's funded like there's no there's no more people tinkering in their own backyard and like just seeing how things happen and able to create that into research and so you know if we stay on this bandwagon of like research needs to be funded first before we kind of join the dots then we're going to just keep getting the data that supports what the big companies that are funding all this research kind of wants to to get out and I think following the money in all 
aspects of life is really, really important because then you start realizing how very little control we have and that a lot of the things that we think we have free choice at is not really free choice. It's kind of an illusion. And so following the money and seeing how all the systems work and realizing that, oh, hang on a minute, the company that makes this product at the start of the journey of food also makes the product that helps you at the end of your journey when you're feeling sick from the food that you've eaten. You're like, Mm -hmm. hang on, this is a conflict of interest, you know? And when you realize that a lot of the, you know, a lot of businesses need customers to keep buying, you know, you need to be profitable. You, how do you hook them in? This is true from fast food, salt, fat, sugars, and and that to the pharmaceutical industry that needs you to keep taking a pill for the rest of your life. You know, all those things make you a customer for life and is a profiteering aspect. And so, you know, there's a lot of industries like that get you addicted to the pokies and then the gambling is the same. You want that dopamine hit of, of winning and they like go through a lot of psychology research to make sure that the mood and the lighting and the bells and the sounds all make you kind of want to spend more money. So this is not any crazy Uh, woo-woo stuff but it's like this is kind of the way the systems work and if we keep allowing you know I always kind of say on the podcast as well that like the skincare industry is never going to fund a research that water is better for your skin because then they would do their whole industry out of business so who's funding whether water is the best thing for our skin uh, and all these products are kind of bogus you know so that's the kind of the dilemma I have that there is no kind of rogue mad scientist fund anymore so people are only researching if they get funded and get a lab and and all these other jazz so yeah the more we can tinker in our own backyard and the more we can kind of come up to conclusions ourselves by growing food and seeing you know a lot of farmers are starting to do like one technique in one paddock and another technique in the other paddock and they might think that the new technique they're doing is a bit woo-woo and they can't explain it (laughs) but two years later that's the green lush paddock that got avoided from a bushfire that came through the area, you know, and it's like, how do you not join the dots and say, well, whatever he was doing works or showed positive results? Yeah, that's amazing. And that's really empowering people to actually just take it back and do it yourself and see, see what's going to happen. Yeah. That's amazing. And maybe a little segue then into why haven't we been able to buy our own land because other like foreign investors are purchasing all the land. And if we follow the money there, what are we uncovering? Mm. Yeah, really good point. And one of the reasons why we started Farmlet is because COVID, a lot of farmland became available even post-COVID where they're very large pieces of land that they're like literally the size of countries from overseas that could fit in Australia. And so they go on the mark of a 10, 15, 20, 30, $40 million, if not more. And even very wealthy Australians don't have that kind of capital behind them to buy that. So unfortunately, the common trend that happens is that this land gets acquired by overseas investors like unfortunate thing that happens is that sometimes this land gets taken out of productivity or production. So there's this kind of thing where investors from overseas do this thing called land banking, where instead of having money sitting in the bank, they go and buy land and they know that it's going to appreciate six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10% per year. And they just go and land bank and they hold their money in land waiting for the land prices to appreciate. The bad thing about that is that it takes it out of production because not a lot of overseas investors then want to hire a farm manager to farm that land and, you know, have the headaches of defenses are not working and this and, and all this other stuff. And so it goes into the too hard basket and they're just actually better off land banking. So this is kind of where Farmlet grew from because we saw this kind of trend happening and we started hearing about it and we thought, hang on a minute, if we bring a group of people together that we call co-owners and if we find what we call a fantastic farmer who wants to manage the land and wants to manage it regeneratively, 
and we can find the parcel of land that has opportunity potential, you know, regenerative potential. So we're looking for land that has been degraded, that has been kind of neglected, and we can get that land. We put a fantastic farmer on that land to work it and run cattle and, you know, regenerate the soil. We sign them up for like soil checks and processes to make sure that they're following good soil practices. And we can get a group of people to come together as co-owners and, and own that land together, then there could be something really exciting here. So we went down that pathway and that's kind of what launched, not kind of, but that is exactly what launched Farmlet, which is this opportunity where everyday Aussies can come together and buy farmland. And traditionally it was done in like company and trust structures where people would have a trust set up and you would have like a thousand shares and each person would own a share and they'd put money into this company. But what we've done is we've partnered with a company called Bricklet who over the last five years has been working with governments and really given a lot of traction on this co-ownership. You know, they've done a co-ownership of a pub. They've done co-ownership of an apartment block. And the good thing is that whoever's using the pub, whoever's using the farmland is paying rent to use that land. And then that rent, instead of being given to one owner or one overseas investor, it is getting dispersed across all the different co-owners. So the rent goes in and then the system splits that money to all the co-owners. So that's why we got really excited because it's a way that we can protect farmland to be owned by Australians, that other Australians are then farming the land, especially up and coming farmers who are really driven to regenerate the land. But they also don't have, you know, family lineage of farm owners who are going to like get the family farm. Uh, or if there is a family farm in, in the family, the parents want to run it their way and like what do the kids know they're just you know not they don't they're not wise they're not wise enough to take over the farm yet so we've got a lot of young farmers who want to get access to land and regenerate it and so that's why we're really excited that we can find those fantastic farmers that are running you know a really good business on leased land and they're paying strangers to use the land we're now bringing that model to go let's get this fantastic farmer find a farm and then that farmer is leasing the land off the co-owners and then the co-owners are benefiting because they now know the farm they have like the bragging rights to say i own a bit of farmland in australia <laughs> and you're not actually owning like a plot of land it's kind of a virtual you know what they call fractionalized ownership of land uh, some people refer to it as like a strata where you like slice something up into virtual spaces and you're buying like a block or a piece of that hence the name farmland you're mm -hmm. buying like a little bit of a virtual space of that land. So the good news is that a lot of the farmers that we're working on want to encourage the farmlet owners to come on the farm and see the way that they do it, buy produce and things from the farmer. So what a great kind of, you know, story where you can sit down at the dinner table and say, you know, the food that we're eating on today's table is come, you know, has come from farmer Cam who grew the food on the land that we partly own, you know, and so there's that real Kind of connection and knowing exactly where the land the, the the food came from and that you even own a bit of that land as well and you're kind of contributing to getting the land regenerated and so forth so that's what farmlet's all about and um i think you know the future of farmland ownership will be this kind of co-ownership um you know we can have a property with four slices we can have a property with two thousand slices so that's the beauty about the farmlet model and the farmlet method is that we can work with farmers and people who want to own land and kind of create a slice of the deal to however it works for everyone involved. Like some families are using it to 
share the farm across multiple family owners and other people are wanting to set up a community garden where people literally get access to their plot of acre and use the farmlet model to kind of change who owns that plot, you know, that season and so forth. So lots of uh, cool opportunities that are happening. And, you know, if we can co-own apartment blocks and shopping centers and pubs, then why shouldn't we co-own farmland and keep it in Australian ownership? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's beautiful that it's kind of gone back to the way of like, yeah, this was grown on our land <laughs> at the dinner table when you yeah, can yeah. say that. It's really cool. And you're you're giving Australians a chance to invest, which like most people don't actually even invest. And then you're actually producing jobs for the farm owners. It's amazing. I love how it's evolving that some of the farm owners and like all the investors, they can make their own decisions and it can be what it wants, like what you never thought it could be. Everyone just kind of adds to it. It's so interesting. Is there anything? Yeah, it's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's pretty much like bringing back the whole village vibe again, where like everyone mm-hmm. contributes and, you know, even through the platform, you have the ability to like raise questions or changes that want to happen on the farm and everyone can kind of vote whether they want certain things to happen. You know, if the fantastic farmer wants to leave, they can, and some other fantastic farmer takes over the management of the property. So it's really dynamic with the way that it's kind of achieving. Like, you know, the one of the things that most farmers go through is that they're growing their enterprise through leasing neighbors' properties. And then the neighbor wakes up one day and says, oh, the kids want to sell the farm. Sorry, you have to get off. We're going to sell it. And mm-hmm. it's going on the market for $2 million. And the farmer goes, well, I can't buy it off you. Um, and now my whole, you know, expansion project is out the window. And so the farmer feels like they're constantly getting the odds stacked against them. So yeah. that's one of the things that, you know, with this model, it's like, well, stop paying leases to, to your neighbors. Like, let's go and buy that land together as a co-owner. And, you know, it's a very common thing in the farming world. And that's what we're trying to help people do is, you know, how do you buy the farm next door? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about actually the farmer's struggle, like the industrial way farmers have such a struggle, like they were doing it season to season, they have to buy all the chemicals, they have to buy all the huge equipment, that's millions of dollars, and they're kind of left on their own. And I feel like no matter what they do, they hit up against these massive walls of like, if you have cattle, they end up diseased, and then you can't even sell all of your cattle and then all of that how are they feeling like more with this regenerative model as they're moving in? Do they feel like there's like breathing space and they can finally, you know, move forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good thing to talk about. Like a lot of people don't realize like mental fatigue, mental stress, Mm -hmm. anxiety, depression, you know, even suicide rates in amongst farmers, like it is very, very big and it's very, it's very much not spoken about. And so you know, farming is probably one of those industries. And even during COVID, they were like a viable required service that didn't shut down. Farmers had like the ability to cross borders and go and and continue business as usual because they kind of are the lifeline. So much so that when we, you know, kind of set footprint onto this planet, um, you know, farmers would get free holdings, which meant like you go and get that land and you go, you're the sheep provider and you're the wheat provider, like growing food for a group of people is kind of like one of the first things that happens when they, you know, kind of settle slash take over land. And so <laughs> that's how viable it is. And so farmers kind of in one of those industries where, you know, they don't know what they're going to sell the cattle for because it's the day that it goes to market that sets the price. And so during COVID, we saw cattle prices raise, which means that farmers were making decisions of like expanding their enterprise. And then 
you know, a financial glitch happens and like stock markets drop and crypto markets drop. And then all of a sudden the cattle price goes from $1,200 down to $800. And so the money that they were banking on getting for this futures market, unless they like locked in a certain price, which most farmers wouldn't do, like people don't realize that trading cattle and grain and all that, it's basically like a stock market, you know, that you wake up on a certain day and this is the price. And so you could you know, stack all the odds in your favor, wake up one day, the market crashes and you think, oh my God, all these cattle that I was going to sell at this price, I'm now 30, 40% below that. And I've already put everything on credit cards or I've taken a mortgage or like an overdraft with my bank. And now I have no way of paying it. And then a flood happens, then a drought happens. And then bee colonies get kind of destroyed because someone in government thinks that that's the right thing to do. And your whole business model gets kind of thrown upside down. We've got lots of orchards that aren't, fruiting because there's bee, bee drops and you know no pollination and we've got you know chemical companies that are capitalizing and saying oh you need this chemical but it's you know your, your invoice you know some farmers invoices on inputs is like a hundred thousand dollars per season and they haven't even sold the first thing yet you mm. know and so that's a lot of stuff that farmers need to put forward before they even make one bit of profit and that's why a lot of the times farmers feel like they're behind the eight ball you know they make a good yield but they're paying off the last three years of debts you know, and so uh, then a drought happens and they're like, the year that I thought I was going to make it, you know, some some other natural disaster or a fire happens or COVID happens and, and things like that. So there's been a lot of uncertainty in this space and a lot of times where farmers have to buy everything at retail price, but then sell at wholesale price, you know, yeah. and it's one of the only industries that that kind of, that ha happens and that their price is kind of defined by the, by the market. So it is definitely tough out there. And that's why, you know, a lot of kudos to the people who have stuck it, especially fifth, sixth generation farmers, like they've gone through a lot and seen a lot and the resilience has definitely um, been there. And so that's definitely a mindset that really has to kick into place to make sure that someone's kind of mentally fit for something like that, you know? And so it is definitely hard yards and you never know, you know, what's on your to-do list for that day. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenging. And that's why I really like this um, community supported agriculture models, sometimes referred to as like CSAs, where you partner with the farmer and you buy a percentage of what, what they grow. And so it's, it's very, it's a Japanese kind of created movement. And it's like, instead of buying the farmer's yield based on the kilos, which puts a lot of pressure on the farmer that they must grow 10,000 kilos of carrots to provide the need. It basically says, I have a community supported agriculture model where a percentage of my yield is going to go across a thousand members. And so if they create 10 carrots that year because of a flood, then no one gets carrots, but everyone's okay with that because they've signed up to get a percentage of the yield and they're kind of going in partnership with the farmer. So I think, you know, those models, we're going to start seeing a little bit more of them. They're quite bigger in the American market rather than Australia. Here in mm -hmm. Australia, we want to like buy things by the kilo and subscription boxes need to have six tomatoes and, you know, two kilos of mushrooms. And we, we're very like weight and quantity driven where a CSA model is like a bit of a mystery of what you're going to get in your box based on, you know, the pick that week or the pick that month. So yeah. Um, I think that's beautiful because it is is actually shocking and there's like the industry that they have it's the most gambling I've ever seen in an industry you're gambling on the weather you're gambling on your, your yield if there's going to be floods and then also if you can pay your like bills because if someone's going to actually buy your cattle at that price it's wild and that it is the lifeline like the lifeline the lifeblood to society and we don't have any like safeguards or any support for farmers like 
government-wise or anything, it blows my mind. They're actually making it harder most of the time as well. Like I've seen so many times where there's like a legislation that gets passed and it just makes it like, oh, I can't sell my yield now because of this rule. <laughs> I don't understand yep. why that support isn't like focused on the farmers when it's like our food. <laughs> yeah. Look, there are some government funded things, but unfortunately, and even in America, there's this big thing of subsidies. But the problem with this is that you have to kind of fail to then get rewarded or not, not even rewarded. You have to like prove that things didn't work out mm-hmm. to then get kind of compensated for your gap. And like, unfortunately it's a mindset where it's like, oh, well, if this doesn't work, the subsidy will cover me. So there isn't this kind of like drive to exceed and thrive and do better. Like, you, you know, we should be kind of rewarding the people who are doing really good and, you know, being able to yield in times of downtime that they are rewarded for their hard effort rather than the people who don't do it properly and then get a, get a loss, kind of get protected by these subsidy programs and, and grants and funds and all that. So, you know, I think this is kind of like where, you know, humanity as a group has kind of like stopped innovating. Like it's no one's problem to solve that anymore. Like no one wakes up and says, Oh, I'm just going to go and solve this problem. Like, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of innovation that's happening and there's some amazing things happening, but you know, in the majority, you know, there's this kind of attitude of like, Oh, well, you know, someone else's job to fix that broken pothole and Oh, well, someone else's Mm -hmm. job to fix the fallen tree over the driveway. And, And, you know, they're kind of like community spirit where everyone groups together and like, rebuild something that's burned down or like when a tree falls like everyone just like starting the chainsaw and like helping out and fixing it's like oh you know we need a license to go up a ladder these days of course no one's going to go and save someone up a roof because like they don't know how to use a ladder you know so we've kind of gotten to this point now where there isn't that you know hero village kind of thing happening everyone's a little bit too scared to get involved when something's not going right you know you look at all the looting and stuff that's happening in america like no one wants to intervene and do the right thing there's like councils that are falling apart and turning into like you know really bad places to live and like no one's caring because it's like oh cancel should fix that or government legislation will fix that and like that's too slow to to fix the problem and the rates and the same with the regenerative movement you know a lot of people like oh i'll go regenerative when this chemical gets banned it's like but if it's banned in so many parts of the the world just because not banned here like why isn't that a strong enough signal to care and to change and to do different, you know? So yeah, yeah, it's just kind of like something that we've got into this holding pattern where everyone feels like it's not their job to go that extra mile anymore. So yeah, this topic comes up a lot, actually. It's like, we're relying on the outside world a lot. Like it's the output, not like inside. We never rely on ourselves for even our self healing as well, but yeah, fixing things, helping people. We always assume someone else is going to help, but yeah, there's a lot of red tape and I don't, I don't blame everyone. Mm, that's right. That's true. Like sometimes getting those subsidies is so much work. It's like, Oh, too hard basket. You know, you need a full-time mm-hmm. job just to fill out all the paperwork to, you know, even like a lot of the tree grants and all that. It's like, yeah, we'll plant 10,000 trees on your property, but this is all the paperwork you need to do. And you need auditing every year. And we need to have access to the site six times over that 10 year period. Everyone's like, Oh, forget about that. Like too hard basket, you know? So yeah, it's there, but you got to jump over seventeen hoops to get it. <laughs> yeah, and you might not get it still, or all of that. Yeah, so that's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, or it gets defunded. So you're five years into the program, governments change, and then that program gets defunded. And you're like, great, all that work for nothing. Yeah, yeah. 
it's very challenging. It's always like permits and everything that a farmers need. I feel like they need to be so many different kinds of people wear so many hats. It's it's shocking. Absolutely. Yeah, jack yeah. of all trades is definitely a benefit in the farming world. You need to know how to weld. You need to know how to be a mechanic. You need to know how to be a father, a mother. You know, a carer. Mm-hmm. You need to wear many many hats. The marketing person, the tax person. You basically wearing twenty yeah. hats in a day. You know, so or maybe even in an hour. So yeah, it's definitely a jack of all trades industry and a generalist is better than a specialist. You know? Yeah. There's a really yeah, good show great. called Ger- like Clarkson's farm. I feel like that describes as well. Have you seen that? <laughs> Where he yeah. goes through all the struggles. He's a sheep yeah, farmer yeah, and cow yeah. farmer, all of that. But if anyone wants to watch that, it's a funny way to learn about farming. But yeah, if we kind of go down this like darker route, what kind of other challenges are like happening? Because I know that the bees are being exterminated. We were talking about that. The floods that the farmers are experiencing a lot always experience in Australia. Yeah, I think one of the things that's kind of happened over this degradation of land is this resilience of being able to fight pests and being able to be resilient through a fire or a flood. And so because a lot of the landscapes have been depleted, you know, a lot of the wildlife has collapsed, you know, nothing there is nothing more dead than a monocultured farm. And so for someone who doesn't understand what that monoculture farm means, it's, you know, if you're like a corn grower or a, or a soybean farmer for the soy industry, for tofu and soy milk and all these other jazzes, like you have hectares and hectares and acres and acres and whatever metric you want of land that is just growing one type of food. Now, if we think of like the soil as a biological system, let's think of it to something that we understand, like our human body is biological as well. Now, imagine if like for the next 10 years, all you're going to eat is soy. Like you're going to get bored very, very quickly and your body is going to get to a point where maybe the amount of soy and all the things that happen in soy become very boring and toxic and very high in one mineral, but extremely low in another mineral. That's exactly what's happening in these monocultured farms. And so, you know, we put, you know, a superfood gets created. It's like, yay, superfood kale. Within two years, kale is probably one of the worst foods to eat because of the marketing trend of like, we need to grow more kale. Farmers and the food companies and the chemical companies basically say, how do we grow more kale to keep up with this demand? You know, quinoa did the same thing. Like quinoa became so expensive that people who used it as their staple food basically got priced out. They couldn't even eat the food that they were like, was their grain of staple because quinoa became so popular globally. And so what happens is all these shortcuts start getting created. The biological area of that starts collapsing. So all the wildlife leaves. And then when they pick all that soy, it's just acres and acres and hectares and hectares of like dead, dying, you know, stalks. And the frogs leave, the bugs leave, the bees leaves, the fly leaves. And so that area now becomes really susceptible to pesticide attack, disease attack, and we're not creating an ecosystem that's balanced and thriving. And so our pressures to grow the same crop over and over and over in the same fields, because it's just really easy to run that tractor through the fields of that clear land is creating like this massive problem. And so then when it rains, instead of the soil being able to suck that water in, because a well-balanced soil actually has like this kind of vacuum principle where there's so much aerated soil that when it rains, the air comes to the top and the water gets sucked in. And so really healthy soils have the ability to suck a lot of water in and hold a lot of water. But in compact, dry, monoculture farms, it rains and that water doesn't go down into the soil. It runs off into the waterways and the catchments. And it runs off at such a rate that it causes massive floods 
And so in these natural events that the landscape should have basically been able to support it, we've now got environments that's causing flooding and then that water doesn't sit in the ground. So when it's a really hot day, it creates drought, hot season creates drought. You know, then a fire happens because it's so dry and brittle. And then that fire spreads like crazy because it's like perfect conditions. And so all these systems just start kind of cycling down in this vortex of like one bad thing after another, after another, after another. And that is the degenerative kind of approach, you know, the degen kind of area. So that's why we need to start thinking about regen. And it's no wonder that like over the last few years, we've had like a lot of flood events. We've had a lot of drought, the mite that has um, attacked the beehives, you know, it's never been in Australia. Then all of a sudden it's here and, you know, and I understand they're trying to control it, but you know, they're destroying perfectly good hives just in case, you know, and I'm no expert in that field, but it just seems like there's this kind of approach that's a little bit over the top because I feel like the collapse of the bee colonies is actually going to create a bigger problem when there's so much food shortages or like nuts aren't being pollinated. And there's, you know, there's just going to be shortages of so many different lineages of food. And because we have so much food in storage, we don't see the direct result this season. We see it two, three seasons down the track, you know, our, export market drops so then there's less capital that's coming into the country um you know there's this whole amount of ripple effects that happen from all the flood and so forth you know interest interest rates are going up left right and center and combat inflation you know this is all inflation mm-hmm. that's from covid days you know so if we're just catching up from covid the lack of pollination that happens is going to cause a lot of you know instead of farmers yielding 10,000 kilos of something they're only doing 8,000, that little 2,000 across all the different farmers really, really matters with the amount of food that's available, the price of food. That's a um, dilemma that kind of exists and I you know, am worried. I think the best thing that we can do is just empower ourselves to go, yep, if there is a food shortages, I know how to grow some food in my own backyard or I have access to some soil that I can grow food and produce to, or I'm connected with my farmer that we have an agreement that every year they're going to give me X amount of um, produce and so forth. So I think those kind of systems, like having seeds available so you can, uh, you know, in COVID, toilet paper and seeds mm-hmm. were the first things to sell out, you know, thing for the start of the journey <laughs> and the end of the journey. You know? so, <laughs> um, it's eating is a very big part of our survival. You know, it's one of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like making sure that we've got like food and shelter sorted. So, you know, do we know where to live and can we yeah. eat and feed ourselves? So really, really important to make sure that those things are kind of covered off and not from a doom and gloom point of view, but just from a realistic point of view of, am I okay for a couple of months if things yeah, don't go as a well? society, because we're just kind of out of balance kind of thing. Interesting. I didn't actually realize that the floods were caused by the soil not holding it in. That's so interesting. But I did know, yeah, about the flooding and all that. Yeah. I always thought about it, you know, in the terms of it's flooding off of the tilled soil that's not absorbing it and it's just pushing all the pesticides into our water and just that concept of it but yeah it is actually causing the floods and the emptied out land without all the trees is causing all the drought because it's too dry to hold on to anything so interesting so they call it a water infiltration test and you can google this and look at it on youtube you know water infiltration they put like a ring on the soil and they pour an X amount of water into that ring and they time how long it takes for that water to absorb into the soil. And so on some soils, you know, they can wait hours and it's still sitting on the top of the surface because it's got such a hard crust and it's so compacted that it's basically working like Mm -hmm. a terracotta pot. 
you know, or a ter- terracotta dish because it's clay so compacted. But in really healthy soils, you could pour like liters of water and it literally is just, you know, if you do the same test, by the time you start the timer and stop it, the water's gone. Like it's, you we're talking milliseconds to suck that water in and it's all based on physics and the hydraulics of the landscape. So, you know, you think about if you have a bucket of water or a bottle of water and you turn it upside down, the air goes up and the water goes down. And that's just how the universe kind of, if you had like a sealed container um, and you had water on the bottom, so you had air in the bottom and you pour water through, say, sand, it's very quick that that tries to reverse itself, it flips. And so the hydraulics of the landscape basically says that if you have aerated soil, when it rains, the, the oxygen in the soil wants to go out in the atmosphere and the water gets sucked in like a vacuum uh, into the soil. And you talk about, you know, large areas of land and like in a you know, 10 millimeter or, you know, like a hundred millimeter of rain downpour, uh, if we're not sucking that soil into the ground and it's running off, that mm-hmm. is a massive, massive problem. And so that is all part of like one of the metrics that they use is what's known as soil organic matter, uh, SOM, but it's the carbon value of the soil. Now, you know, back in the day, soil organic matters in most fertile soils were like six to 8%. We've depleted that down to, in most cases, 1%, you know? And so it doesn't take long to rebuild that soil using certain methods to help improve that soil's fertility and life and aeration. So that way it's a very balanced working system. So on a heavy downpour, if all the farmers have healthy soil, that, that mm-hmm. water goes into the ground. And then it means they have to pay less to get water rights. You know, a lot of farmers have to pay to use water from the creek and the rivers and their lakes and their dams, you know. And so if we had really healthy soils, we wouldn't have to irrigate Mm -hmm. as much as we do. But then someone doesn't get that profit. So are they motivated to have healthy soils if they're going to kill their bottom line? You know, so these are the dilemmas I have. But then those people really need to pivot what they're selling or what they're doing. And yeah. I, I completely understand. Like once you start running a business, I feel like you just look through the lens of just making money and everything disappears. And let's let's take a step back though. And like, you can pivot, you can do something else. If you're not making money off of the water, like, I feel like you should just pivot your values a little bit, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Easier said than done. Yeah. Cause the other dilemma as well is that people go to their experts, quote unquote experts for advice. You know, it's the same way as when we're not feeling well, mm-hmm. you go to the doctor, they tell you to do this, do that. And you just follow the process and farmers do the same. They go and speak to the experts and they say, oh, this year you've got to use this new chemical that's just come on the market or this new product. They wouldn't call it a chemical. They'd call it a product, an input and it's sugar coated. And it's like, oh, this is the next best thing. It's going to make your fields green. It's going to take away this pest and that pest. And, you know, and then it doesn't go to plan and they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, yeah. Next season you've got to use this other one that goes with it. And it's like, you know, there's a bit of a joke in the industry that, you just keep putting more and more and more on and you become a moron farmer, you know, because you're just following the process of how many kilos an acre you're putting on, on certain chemicals. And some farmers are living their life in a tractor doing one pass with this chemical, this pass with seeding, this part with picking and, and, you know, just, they just kind of living the tractor life rather than enjoying mm-hmm. the landscape. So um, yeah, that's um, the industrial ag revolution unfortunately we can fix it so if like some farmers did want to change where could they go for this information or the support from someone that wants to actually change the land and figure out their soil situation yeah i think that's a really great question and i think there's a lot of resources now i think now more than ever there is this big movement of understanding how soil functions 
whether it be called natural farming, no chemical farming, biological farming, regenerative farming, whatever you need to call it. These are the kind of threads that you can go down to understand how do I understand my soil better? And instead of buying a $50,000 implement on the back of the tractor, maybe you can go and buy a $4,000 microscope and start looking at the soil under a microscope or doing a course online or attending ag workshops that are all around, you know, more holistic approaches to farming, different grazing methods, different growing kind of ways and just get around what kind of works for you. You know, a couple of years ago, you'd be kind of isolated in communities. You'd be like the, the one woo-woo crazy farmer mm-hmm. and you wouldn't tell your neighbors why your paddock's so green and, you know, oh, I can't explain it. I don't know. But really, you know, deep down they're doing biodynamic farming, but mm-hmm. they don't want their neighbors to know. And so that's, you know, a big thing where a lot of farmers felt like they were isolated. They couldn't really speak to their community about like what they were doing because they felt that they would get like shut out because, you know, the one doing it differently. But because so many things have collapsed over the last five years, these are the farmers that people are leaning on and going, you know, how you did that biodynamic stuff. I'm not convinced, but you've got the green paddocks, you know, I need, to, I need green paddocks. What are you doing? So, you know, finding out the people in your community that are doing things a bit differently, hanging out more with them, picking the brains of people of those. But on YouTube, there is a bucket load of information, you know, especially around, you know, using a microscope and understanding yeah. the, the food web, uh, the soil food web and how all those microorganisms are kind of working together underground. You know, like a lot of farmers have free labor under their ground that don't require sick days, don't require tax, payroll, any of that jazz. If you work with and partner with those microbes under the ground, you have basically my, you know, microbes working for you 24-7. You know, even so many studies now that when people start improving their soil health, they avoid like the frost that happens overnight. You know, the grass doesn't frost over and like you can see images online where you've got one neighbor doing one particular method and on the other side of the fence they're not doing anything and they're like white frosted paddocks and the neighbor here is got like green lush grass because the grass stays warmer and has more forget what it's actually called but it has something in it that doesn't freeze so instead of the blade of grass being full of water which then does freeze it's full of this other thing i'm pretty sure it starts with g but i can't remember the name but it's it's got this other chemical in it that is not freezable and so the grass blades stay green and that means that the cattle can still eat it at three o'clock in the morning rather than it being frosted you know so that's the things that kind of start happening when we start allowing people to do what they do so yeah lots of things on youtube courses you know spend some time on google network within your community you know, seek out who's doing things a little bit differently or who's looking to reduce their chemical inputs and, uh, yeah, and work together because then you've got two plots that you can kind of track and measure and share data mm-hmm. with and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's so interesting that we're, like, shocked by the grass doing that when that's what the grass should be doing. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. cool. It's like the proof is in the yeah. pudding, though, when there's, yeah. that's the worst to saying, but when there's two fields next to each other and there's just, like, clear <laughs> evidence. I've always wondered why not everyone didn't have a microscope. I was like, why are we never taught to use microscopes in like, you know, unless you do a degree, which, which teaches you that everyone should have a microscope at home for so many reasons. You don't know what's in anything because you've given the power away to the scientist across the ocean. Like it's really interesting, but I love that they're using microscopes yep. and they're taking on that team underground. It's really awesome. Really cool. Yep. So I don't know. Where should we dig into now? Let's dig into the future a bit. What are you seeing and envisioning for farmland and everything in the future of agriculture? 
Well, we're very, 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 very close. I mean, like maybe next week. I don't know when this podcast will go live, but maybe once it's live, it'll already be there. But we've got our first farm. Uh, so we've got our first fantastic farmer. We've got our first land acquired. Um, and we're about to launch the first marketing campaign around everyday Aussies being able to buy into a farmland project. And so that's really exciting. And I guess from a future point of view, we hope that this starts a domino effect where other farmers raise their hand and say, I want a farm that's co-owned and I know that my lease payments are going to people who are going to benefit from the community of this land ownership and co-ownerships. So, you know, that's kind of what we feel will become maybe the norm in the future where land is owned by groups. And we have the ability to even protect certain land that might be open to development or deforestation things like that because what's really cool about the farmlet method is that with the partner of bricklet you actually get put on the title under a caveat clause and so all the owners if there's a thousand owners on a particular title then all those names are named on the title through this caveat clause and um, and this co-owner register and so if a development is going to happen on that land, now all of a sudden you have like 1,000 people that you need to communicate with rather than just one person. And so it's going to be a lot harder to kind of bully, I guess, 1,000 people into accepting a deal than it is if you have one person. So, you know, there's a lot of things that people are starting to realise that if we bring this group of many together, we become more kind of empowered to be in a way of protecting the land and connected to it and so forth. So, yeah, I think... And even like with the way that prices are going, I think co-ownership is going to play a big part. You look at like Uber and so forth, where, you know, cars are put out on the road that are owned, you know, that are that are shared, you know, the whole share economy. We've got bigger, you know, people are roommating a lot more and sharing houses and you've got five people living in one house. So like, I think because the cost of everything has just gone up, our whole mentality of like, oh, I don't need to own a car. I can just can use a car for mm-hmm. a couple of hours when I need it. You know, so people who are living in the cities where they have everything really close by, they're able to kind of tap into this kind of share economy a little bit more. And I think farmland plays a big part in that where people can live in the city, but own a bit of slice of farmland out in rural where their food produce is coming from, where they know the story of their farmer and have that kind of bit of a bridge and that connectivity to rural parts of Australia when they're living Mm -hmm. in like a concrete jungle. So Yeah, I think that's really cool. And that's kind of like the main focus at the moment is how do we get more and more farms under the farmlet method where we can help them get access to land, transition the land back into a regenerative oasis and, you know, really give kind of kudos to the regenerative movement and proofing the pudding. Because a lot of farmers are sitting on the sideline, you know, waiting for show me, you know, instead of telling me, show me. So the more that we can show those results then we can yeah forget about like you know what's been researched for years and go well this is this is what's happening mm-hmm. like here's the case study uh, you can go on the farm and feel it and taste it see it and uh, who cares where the science is at and who cares where regulations at and you know let's stop outsourcing it to an external body to regulate certain things before we get empowered to go and make the change yeah, that we want yeah, to see definitely and i love that like this is kind of making space for more people to be farmers and that actually want to be farmers put their hand up to actually be a farmer because it doesn't seem like well i know that there's like no generations of people that really want to be farmers because it's so grueling and there's so many challenges and there's so many hats everyone has to wear they're like why would we do that but what are we going to do without farmers 
So I love that that opportunity has opened up and that people in the concrete jungle can live in that symbiosis almost with, with nature, even in the concrete jungle. Really fascinating. And we're wired for that. We're wired for that. You know, there's so much research as well. Maybe another area that I like to just touch on is like the links between like the gut biome yeah. and the soil biome. You know, there's a lot more researchers now. Dr. Zach Bush is playing a big part in doing a lot of this research from his lab um, that he's set up where, you know, they're finding links that if food is grown is in really good soil that has the great biome and, and balance of nature, then that plant grows with much better properties. And then the fruit that it yields have better properties. And if it's not a fruit yielding plant, it might be grass that a, a cattle eats, then that cattle has better properties and we consume it and we have better properties. And now gut biome improves and then the links between gut biome and mental health stability is also another mm -hmm. fascinating area that if we eat better quality foods that are more nutrient dense or are more closely linked to our local biome you know we're not eating apples that have been shipped from halfway around the world but we're eating apples that have come from a local source that has the local biome that that our bodies need then we are functioning as better humans as well being able to make better decisions you know more clarity less mental diagnosis and things like that. So that's really interesting that, you know, it all kind of comes, you know, that whole saying of like, you are what you eat kind of extends to you are what you mm -hmm. eat, ate, you know what I mean? And that even means like what your plant was eating from the soil, you know, and the fact that underground, you know, a lot of people think that plants are just taking up water, but they're exchanging minerals. Like there's an actual kind of stock exchange that's happening underground where the plant says, I need copper and you're a microorganism that can get me copper. Here's some carbohydrates as payment and energy. Go get me that copper from over there. And all the soil under the ground is basically mm -hmm. like bidding each other to get carbon and sugars and, and exchanging minerals for the plants to function. And they're using, you know, the water and the microorganisms as their kind of communication network. And so that's really interesting to learn and understand and that, you know, the way that that plant grows and in that soil is then reflected into like what we eat and how our gut biome receives that and how we function as human beings. So I think that's um, also what keeps me really fascinated in this space is seeing more and more of that research get. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I recently had a guest on, I think last episode 16, where she, she actually had a stroke and she found all those connections in the body is what, what actually healed her. She went back to eating organic and grounding herself moving down from an apartment and living on the ground floor and really connecting back to the earth and all, to herself that's really what ended up healing her so it's a really really powerful connection we yeah. I feel like we always forget that we are part of the ecosystem we just love to separate ourselves and think that we're better than it I feel like it's a bit of a shame because it ends up just causing us unhealth and mental health and all of those issues I'd love to touch on just one thing. I know that with farmlet, you're combating this issue where a lot of like the soil on earth is already depleted to a point where we might not be able to even regenerate it. Is that, what was that portion of that? Um, yeah. So a lot of the soil is already <laughs> degraded. I think it's basically, yeah, the figures are that like two thirds, like nearly 66% of the soils um, are degraded in some way, but, to my point before as well with like the whole yeah. Chernobyl kind of situation, I do yeah. think that nature always wins. So if we move out the way and stop trying to pull the levers to control that, you know, this is the carbon that we need and this is that, and we need to like control, you know, the, the, the way that the soil repairs itself, 
I do, and you made a statement before as well, where it's like, if humans were to disappear off the planet, the planet will heal itself very, very rapidly and quickly. So I don't think we've gone past the tipping point of no return. And I think even if we do, it will have, it will kind of course correct itself. So yeah, I'm definitely sitting more on the fence yeah. of hopium and hope that we, we've got this and, you know, and like together we can really empower. And like, just even over the last five years, the number of people that have become more interested in like growing and owning plants and, you know, not having kids and things like that. Like, I think a lot of those things are shifting in a way that keeps the world balanced in population number and, you know, nurturing in kind of like wildlife and, and plant life, you know, there's kind of a thing now in the cities where pets are the new kids yeah. and plants are the new pets, you know? And so, you know, this, I don't know if this is just like something that the planet is creating because it needs us to slow down with the number of people that are on it in order for it to survive. But, you know, the fertility rates, that's the other thing that like Dr. Zach Bush lab has researched is that like human fertility rates have kind of dropped and followed the same trends as soil fertility rates. So as we've degraded soil and dropped its potential to grow food and yield, then the fertility rates in humans have kind of dropped to the same point. So maybe there is some kind of correlation there. Maybe it's just coincidence. I don't know. But I think there's like something we need to realize there that the planet might have a cap on how many people it can sustain based on its soil fertility rates and it's a potential to yield you know enough survival resources for us all to be okay so yeah i think there are kind of checks and balances in place and with more and more people becoming consciously aware of like how important nature is and soil and connectivity and you know grounding themselves and even like research now in like just the smell of really good healthy soil releases pheromones that help people calm themselves and relax themselves and you know, the trend of like nature bathing where you can just go and sit on a rock in nature and, you know, absorb the light and the rays and the smells and the sounds. Um, a very, again, the Japanese kind of culture where you go in, in Japan and do these, these forest bathing rituals um, and why people always feel good after, a, you know, a session of gardening and when they get out, you know, they're stressed. I just need to go for mm -hmm. a walk and clear my head. You know, there's no reason there's reasons why we we feel clearer after we go for a walk outside you know and so if we just start listening to that trend and start spending more time away from computers and outside of our like square boxes whether it be a car or a tractor or, or a room then we get more connected to nature and get the full yeah, benefits of that agree. yeah and i've seen those graphs with the fertility rates and the soil rates they look very similar i definitely see the correlation there yeah i wanted to just ask about that because i do believe that the planet will correct itself but there's a lot of those studies out there that are like really ringing the alarm bells and i was just like what's what's really potentially going on there i'm going with the hopeful side as well I think the issue is more balancing that the planet survives, but we also survive with it type thing. That's what we need to balance because it will survive without us. Yeah. 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 And I think that's a valid point as well. Cause I know a lot of those graphs, you know, like there's a clock and you know, there's a reference to a clock thing and it's like, we're at like 1158 or something, 1159. We're very close to midnight of like mm -hmm. potentially mass extinction uh, of the human race. And so while those are very, very alarming, maybe they're like your point is like will we survive alongside the planet survive you know maybe they're not related maybe there is an event that causes a large number of people to get affected whether it be you know, natural disasters and then the course correcting happens i'm not sure but i think if we work together and bring back that community spirit where people 
you know, and I, I feel like the education system doesn't empower people to be like this, you know, you know, you're kind of graded against your peers and like, you know, in an exam environment, if you help your peer, you're a cheater and you both, you know, kind of get in trouble. And like, we, we've kind of lost that spirit of like working together and helping each other win. If we just bring back a little bit and, you know, learn that, you know, you can ask for a cup of sugar from your neighbor and you can swap mm. lemons over the fence and, you know, all that kind of stuff that used to just happen as a way of life, you know, yeah, but, but yeah. So I think those kind of things is what's going to rebuild the human spirit and bring everyone more closely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's my favorite thing that you preach. It is the community and the shared community that we've like, we bring back and that's really how human humanity survives. Like we can't survive in our boxes like how everyone has their own lawnmower. And this bothers me so much. Everyone has their own lawnmower when like we can have one and just share it along, along the stretch type thing. What are we doing? Share. Yeah. Yeah. Share economy. Yep. That's exactly my point with the share economy. You know, like tool libraries are becoming a bigger thing where people can, you know, toy libraries are also where like kids, like why does every kid have the same toy and then they outgrow that toy anyway? Like why are we not using toy libraries to go, Okay, you're at this age, you have these toys and you mm-hmm. bring them back to the library the next year. Yeah, beautiful. Gets to enjoy I love it. that. Okay, so I would just left I would I could keep talking forever. So let's go with my last question I ask everyone. Me too. <laughs> um, it's you know, what's one piece of advice or inspiration you'd like to leave listeners with to help them continue or start their journey with whatever you like? Fall in love with soil. <laughs> that is my takeaway. Uh, if you haven't yet found the power of soil and uh, realized how important it is for humanity's success, then let this be your kind of starting ground to go and explore the wonderful world that is beneath our feet. So as I have also become a soil lover, I want you to become a yeah, soil beautiful. lover with us. So Connect back to the soil. Amazing. So just for our listeners, yeah. if they'd like to find you, where can they find you on the internet? Well, if you Google my name, Ray Miladoni, I'm also known as Regen Ray from the podcast as well. But um, if you Google my name, you'll find lots of things around me from business world to soil world. But I'm mainly hanging out now at farmlet.com.au. That is basically where we're putting a lot of effort to really grow this co-ownership of land. We're running webinars. We understand that it's a new territory. So there's a lot of education to go in. So yeah, farmlet.com.au is great starting place and otherwise the podcast which is called secrets of the soil where i just geek out with mm-hmm. lots of guests yeah. and talk Both about of those soil. are my favorite um farmlets webinars are amazing if you do want to learn more i will pop it down below um, as well as all of your socials <laughs> sounds good so thank you so much for joining me that was incredible i think our listeners took a lot away from that and um really really nice chatting with you Likewise, it's uh, always su- super fun to yarn about soil and my background and, and how it's all kind of working together. So thank you for creating yeah, space no and having me I on I hope more guest. people talk about soil because I just want more friends to talk about it with as well. So <laughs> please do. All right. Yeah. My friends have no choice. I force soil on them all the time. I even have stickers that say I love soil I love- and T-shirts and things like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've got, might- got to have the conversation started. Yeah, and if exactly. it doesn't start, I might just start mailing people <laughs> so- the stickers. Thank you. All right. Have a lovely day. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so freaking grateful to have shared this space with you today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, I would absolutely love it if you joined me on Instagram. I'd love to connect in the DMs and chat all things transformation. Hear some of your stories, your journey. It would be so, so cool. It would also mean the world to me if you did just click the little follow bell on Spotify or head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review. 
With your help, we can help more people feel the incredible depths of transformation through stories and teachings shared here. And, you know, please remember, you can do anything you hear here too. It is not for just other people to do. You can do it too. Thank you so much, gorgeous soul. See you on the next episode.